This week, my husband took my car to get serviced. It was thousands of miles past due, and I've gotten used to clearing the you need service reminder that pops up every time I start my car. Don't tell my mom. On the ramp where we exit I-5, there is a man who is almost always there with a sign. This man is the personification of our systemic failure for me. He has a significant tremor, so he is always shaking, so much that I can't read his sign. I don't imagine that he can write or hold an open-top glass of water. He has given, we have given him money several times, to which he, he replies, thank you and God bless, but it is really hard to understand him. It seems like he lives on the grass there around that ramp or the one on the entrance on the other side. The camps on these two exits wax and wane. They get cleared and then are rebuilt the next week. For a while we didn't see him. It was long enough that we noticed that he was gone. When he came back, his face was badly bruised. He was missing teeth and had lost several fingers. I don't know his story. I have imagined a story for him, but I've never stopped to chat and find out what his actual reality is. In some ways, I don't think it's my business. He doesn't have to tell me his story. Every time I interact with him, I'm sad. Sad for his life, but also sad that with his disability, we still don't take care of him. Sad for him and sad for us. This week, the Portland City Council passed a camping ban. This camping ban will require people to take down tents from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., and those who fail to comply will be warned and then fined. It means that people will have to walk around with their things or be fined for littering until 8 p.m. when they can camp again in certain places. I don't know what this accomplishes. Cynically, I think this is a way for the city council to declare that they have done something and to call it a day. Ideally, maybe, this encourages people to move to camps where they can get services and move toward permanency. But listen to the sound of that. The city of Portland has decided that the government will run camps so that people can better themselves. There were and are many places where the government is offering camps to improve upon people's lives. Governments don't have a good track record with this. It's easy to criticize, and I don't know what the solution is, but there isn't just one that will work for every person with a sign living on an exit ramp. On Tuesday night, as Ryan drove my car home, he and my son waved at the man with the sign, but didn't give him money. The man angrily hucked a can at my car and dented and scratched my paint. It startled Ryan and my son and fear was followed by anger. We've talked a lot about that incident in the days following. It's frustrating and also feels a little ordinary in Portland right now, the kind of thing I may not remember in a month. Today, we read one of the more boring call narratives in the Bible. Matthew is a tax collector. Tax collectors had poor reputations because they earned their income shaking down honest merchants. While the artisans and farmers earned their living through hard work, hard work that you could see, Matthew and his colleagues just took a cut of their sales. 
What did the money go for, or how was the amount decided? Unclear to us, unclear probably to the people too. Just a grab for taxes with no obvious benefit to society. In another translation, Matthew is called a toll collector. And I picture him in one of those booths on the highway with 12 lanes. He's kind of a nobody doing his job and taking his cut. We really don't know much about his story except that Jesus says to follow him and Matthew does. That night they have dinner together. Jesus, Matthew, and a bunch of Matthew's friends, tax collectors and sinners. Why would your teacher hang out with these people? The puzzled authorities ask the disciples. But Jesus resp responds that only the sick need a physician. He tells them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This reference is for the authorities. Matthew and his friends may or may not have, may, may or may not be versed in scripture, but the authorities are. He reminds them of Hosea who says of God, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus is with people who need him, who need mercy, and he's showing the authorities and the disciples what it looks like to be caring and empathetic. It changes Matthew's life forever. He goes on to write a gospel preserving the story for you and for me. While Jesus is eating with these new friends, a man whose daughter just died comes rushing in and asks Jesus to save her. The worst thing has happened. His daughter has died and he's coming to beg for Jesus's help. As Jesus is following him to his home, a woman who has hemorrhaged for 12 years touches the fringe of his clothes. This condition would have made her unclean and unable to be in community for 12 years. She's desperate, she's lonely. She tries to touch the fringe of Jesus's clothes, hoping that this nearness would go unnoticed by him and heal her, but it doesn't go unnoticed. He stops and instead of being mad that she touched him or irritated that she's delayed him, he looks her in the eye he talks to her and makes her well. He restores her to the community that she's been longing to be a part of. And then he goes to a home, to the home where the girl has died. It has been long enough that people have come to grieve. There's even a flute player, we learn. But Jesus revives her and brings her back to life. They're small stories, not the big, big deal stories of our holidays or the thematic ones of our seasons. Jesus calls Matthew, heals the hemorrhagic woman, and revives the girl. Their lives are never the same. Jesus changed everything by fulfilling God's desire, mercy and steadfast love, and not burnt offerings. We don't get to hear more about these people's stories. This is it. We know that Matthew went on to be a disciple. The other two were healed and restored to life and community. Beyond the wonder of the event itself, Jesus started something new for them and set them to their purpose. What has Jesus started in you? When have you had the full body conversion of healing and purpose that changed your life forever? If the answer is never, what would that need to be? We gather at church each week to remember the story, to be nourished in prayer, fed, and sent out to do, 
in, sent out into the world to do the work of Jesus, to bring about the kingdom of heaven to the world around us. Jesus was talking in present tense. He meant for us to do the kingdom work to make the world that we live in better for all of us. In the words of one of our Eucharistic prayers, we offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. We come to church to clear the reminder that our souls are overdue for service. We sacrifice our time on a Sunday morning to worship God, to confess our sins, to be introspective and honor the Sabbath. And hopefully each Sunday, that passion and fire, that life-changing conversion is either started or renewed so that we may carry it out again throughout our week. I don't know what the solution is for the economic injustice that capitalism creates in our society. It's certainly more complicated than an anti-camping ordinance. But I do know this, the solution will start with mercy. Mercy for this man who is missing fingers and dented my car. He doesn't have a grievance against my family or my car. He wasn't targeting the Macaulays. He's disabled and unhoused. I can imagine a scenario in which he just doesn't care about the rules and laws and infrastructure in a society that he isn't welcome in. A society where in the next few months, he will likely begin to accrue warnings and tickets and a police record, but not housing. An African proverb says that the child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. I worry that so much of the struggle of this time is our village being burned down by its outcasts. Being merciful gives us purpose and healing. It is the best worship of God that we can offer. Hosea prophesies that, the sacri that sacrifice is like morning dew that goes away early. It is steadfast love that God desires, faithfulness and loyalty, fidelity, the way that Jesus lived it, with mercy, by eating and drinking with people, by laughing with them and looking them in the eye. He heard their stories and he felt their grief. When we do community well, we do these things for one another, for you and for me, and for the people outside our doors and for people living on exit ramps. It is totally free. And through relationship, we learn ever more about God and can find our own exhilarating conversion again or for the first time. But it's scary and it is countercultural. It's easy to be poetic about mercy until it's given to someone people don't think is deserving. Check out the grumbling about St. Andrews in North Portland, where they are trying to build tiny homes for their unhoused neighbors. Mercy is for Sunday morning in church, but not on Sunday afternoon for people in tents. So we come together for worship to orient ourselves to mercy and love as our guiding star and shed the loud distraction of fear and anger and hate and re-centered, re-anchored, and reconverted, we will be sent out again in a few minutes to bring good news into the world. It's simple, but not easy. And it is the work 
that we are called to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.